Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In 2019, it's not a stretch to say most of us know someone who struggled with addiction, whether to alcohol or opioids, even heroin. And sadly, many of us know someone who has died from addiction. This month, cities and towns in Connecticut have asked state lawmakers to back a bill that would allow them to sue drug makers for their role in the opioid crisis. New London is one of the cities leading that effort. Today, where we live, we're going to focus on efforts on the ground in New London County to help people struggling with addiction. Coming up, we're going to hear more about the unique challenges New London faces in the southeast corner of the state. First, we're going to meet members of a team that are working or that's working to connect southeastern Connecticut residents to treatment. Uh, Joining us in studio now is Carol Jones. She's director of harm reduction at Nonprofit Alliance for Living, also program manager for Recovery Navigators. We're going to learn about that program today. Carol, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Also here with us is Jess Morris, uh, who is a recovery navigator with the Nonprofit Alliance for Living and the New London Cares Program. Jess, welcome to our show. Thank you. I should mention that uh, we've been doing these coffee breaks around the state, and we were in New London just a couple of weeks ago, and we first heard about recovery navigators at that coffee break. And coming up, we're going to talk more about the next coffee break that we're going to have and how uh, people around the state can uh, talk with us uh, about some of the issues and uh, stories that are in their community. But we were really interested in learning more about recovery navigators. So I'll start with Carol. Uh, for our listeners, tell us about the premise of this program and who are you helping? Okay. Well, this program came to be um, as a result of a uh, Lawrence and Memorial Hospital community health assessment that was done with our local Ledgelight Health District. And at that time, five um, areas were um, um, addressed that needed help in the city, and opioid use disorder was one of them. So an opioid action team became, uh, there was a committee made an opioid action team, and we worked really hard um, around ideas for addressing um, overdose in our city and our county. And we were very lucky to be awarded a grant from the University of Baltimore that um, was given us so we could start this program, New London Cares. That means coordinated access, resources, engagement, and support. And as part of this, we hired recovery navigators. And these are individuals that go out into our community. They educate people on the use of naloxone, which saves lives. We work at reducing stigma around um, substance use disorder. We um, work one-on-one with individuals that may be experiencing substance use disorder. And really what we want to do is engage individuals, um, be able to support them in their struggle, be able to educate them on drug user health, be able to refer them to medication-based treatment, effective treatment, scientifically proven treatment that works, and stay with them for the course of this uh, experience. We want to provide non-judgmental, harm-reduction-based Uh, treatment for these individuals. And also we want to, um, part of this was to engage individuals with lived experience 
um, that could be peer-led and really talk to individuals because they've lived through the same kind of situation. So tell me more about that, what that means. So your recovery navigators are people in recovery themselves. Jess, you're one of them. Uh, Tell us about some of the work that you're doing. Um, So we engage, like Kara was saying, we go to soup kitchens or the shelters or just even on the piers, you know, when it gets nicer out, Dunkin' Donuts, like we engage people, we kind of, because we have that lived experience and we we can see when someone's struggling sometimes, not always, but um, we can just go up to them and get have a conversation, ask them, you know, are you okay? What's going on? How can we help you? You know, and now that they know us in these places, they'll come up to us, you know, because they'll tell their friends, oh, well, Jess can help or, you know, and we can just meet them where they're at. Ask them, are you ready to stop? Do you want to stop? If you don't want to stop, like here is a syringe access program where you can get clean needles and, you know, here's some Narcan, let's go get a Narcan kit because if they're using, they should have Narcan. The people that are around them should carry Narcan to save their lives and teach them how to use that Narcan. And if they are ready for medication-assisted treatment, we connect them to a Suboxone doctor or a methadone clinic or a Vivitrol shot, which all three have different um, ways of helping, but they all three save lives. And get them in a position where they can live a productive, healthy life, whatever that looks like to them. Yeah. You bring up an important point, Jess. I wanted to go back to Carol Jones, who's director of harm reduction at Alliance for Living and program manager for the program that you work for, Recovery Navigators. When we hear about uh, people struggling with addiction who have substance use disorder, the first thing we think about is, well, let's get them into treatment. But that doesn't always work for everyone, and they're not always ready. So how do you navigate that, Carol? I think that um, the the most important thing is being able to communicate and be able to develop trust with the individuals. And really, we work with individuals based on what their desire is. This is a very harm reduction way of working with individuals. Recovery or um, treatment is different for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, we are really mindful that for opioid use disorder, um, the traditional treatment of going through detox and beds is really not as successful as medication is um, because people come out and then if they return to use, they're more apt to overdose. What we want to do is educate people about the benefits of medication-based treatment for opioid use disorder. We want to demystify and, and destigmatize what people think um, in the community. And we also want to engage in a way where we're very, everybody is unique. I am someone with 32 years in remission. I didn't have the luxury of having medication-based treatment. Um, I'm not a person that um, goes through 12-step programming and does NA and AA, but we will not discount whatever the individual wishes. For some people, that works very well. For other people, they have their own coping mechanisms. I happen to be someone who's pretty spiritual. Um, I exercise. So I think we really need to listen to people and listen to what their needs are and what their desires are. 
This is where we live in studio with me, Carol Jones, who works for Alliance for Living. We're learning more about one of the programs this nonprofit in the southeastern part of the state offers. It's called uh, Recovery Navigators. With us also, Jess Morris, who is one of the recovery navigators working in New London County. Again, uh, helping people um, who um, are, um, you know, struggling with addiction and trying to find them help or ways uh, to get connected uh, to people in the community that understand where they're coming from. You can join us too. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So uh, how big of a team do you have, Carol? And what kind of training are recovery navigators getting so that they're able to talk with people about uh, something that can be difficult uh, to start even a conversation with? Well, we were very lucky that we got a second round of funding from University of Baltimore. We now have five individuals that are working in our community. We provide ongoing education around um, the biology of addiction, around medication-based treatment. We're very lucky to work with Dr. Heimer, Robert Heimer from Yale um, School of Public Health. He does a lot of our trainings around the medication, around the science of addiction. We do motivational interviewing. Um, what does recovery mean to you? Uh, many different roads of recovery. Uh, we do... Um, Let's see, interacting, how to interact with people, harm reduction training, whatever training comes up, um, you know, we are very, very open to it. There's a lot of training right now um, around opiate use and around uh, medication-based treatment. So we really, we do role plays with each other, how to address difficult situations, um, how to work with people that are dual diagnosed. The, 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 it's never ending, the training. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to say that we have reached in yet less than a year over 200 people, around 240 people, and we have engaged over 100 individuals into some type of medication-based treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jess, you were talking earlier about um, the conversations you have with people in the community, mm-hmm. uh, in the Dunkin' Donuts parking lot, or uh, you're meeting them where they are. Mm-hmm. When you talk with them, what is there a common barrier for them uh, where they um, are, you know, they don't know where to turn for help? And what does it look like in New London County in terms of people are ready for treatment, how to access that? Well, I think the biggest barrier that I've seen is that they think that they're going to have to wait a long time to get into the doctors because previously or still sometimes currently they do have to wait. Like they'll call up a Suboxone doctor and they're like, okay, well, next week. Well, if you you want to get somebody that's in active use, if they're ready, they need to go like now because they can change their mind at any given second, you know. And we are able to, we have really great established relationships with a lot of the providers in the area, and we're able to call them and get them in that day, or maybe the next day, but usually that day. And that is huge. That is breaking down a huge barrier for them because they are able, when they're ready, to let's go right now. And they get their medication that day, and you know they get to feel better because it doesn't feel good to come off of opiates at all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that is a huge barrier that I think we're able to break down. What about uh, the family members of uh, people you're trying to help? What kind of support exists for them in New London County? Well, Carol usually deals with the family members of our participants. Um, If I come across one, obviously I'm going to support them as best as I can, but I would turn them over to her. Um, but they, we have support groups in our area for parents dealing with children or family members of opiate use disorder. 
Carol, did you want to add to that, how, how family members can find support? Um, they can call the number, the Navigator Line. I spend time talking to family members. Um, I can refer them to uh, one of our um, organizations, Sound Community Services, has an ongoing support group for family members, people living with opioid use disorder. It's a really great group. And um, I talk through um, some of their concerns and issues with them. And ultimately, um, we talk about a way that perhaps we can engage with the person in their family. You spoke earlier about uh, helping about 200 uh, people uh, since the Recovery Navigators uh, started. Um, and now you're getting more federal uh, grant money to expand the program. Can you tell us about that, Carol? Well, we uh, initially began in New London proper because of the fact we didn't have enough people to go out. Now we're working New London, Groton, East Lyme, Waterford, and uh, Jess and another navigator, Donnie, are now focusing on the Norwich area. If without the federal money, would you be able to do this kind of work? No, we would not. And so what would that mean for the people that you're uh, reaching out to help? Would they just be left without any kind of resource to turn to? Uh, who, who would fill that gap? Well, I think in some ways, I think people would die. I think there would be more overdoses. I think that um, people would then rely on other, by word of mouth, facilities or organizations that they could call. I don't think people would have um, the access to treatment on demand, that we have been able to engage with our providers in the community. I think folks would live without knowing about medication-based treatment, and also they wouldn't have access to naloxone. We've really done a good job of saturating our community with naloxone and educating individuals on how to save lives. So I think we, we do a lot with a little. But every community needs support with this epidemic. It's huge. People are dying. Um, I think that we've seen a small decrease in numbers, but I think the, the figures show that it will be 2022 before we actually see any kind of a big decline here. So we need to, we need to really continue to work in our community as in large. Our businesses are, are just our, our citizens and explain that this is a disease like any other disease and people deserve treatment. How has the larger community responded to your efforts uh, who may not uh, understand substance use disorder, um, who don't understand uh, what it means to be in recovery? I'm just curious, um, some of the conversations you're having to educate the public. Well, I think it's challenging. I think people don't know what they don't know. I think folks now, more and more people have uh, know someone with this um, disease or they have family members with this disease. So I think people are more open to learning about it. I still think we have a lot of work to do around stigma, around um, educating not only families, but our medical community and um, our hospitals around how to fairly treat someone, how to accept someone into treatment, and how to make sure that they get help. I think that it's challenging. People have a, um, a hard time looking at uh, addiction as a disease, like kidney, renal disease, or diabetes, or cardiac disease, but we continue to do it. And I think we've had a really, really good job in New London. We've, we've made a lot of inroads. We've um, been able to contact and work with a lot of people in our community in addition to people living with this um, 
disease because that's really important to us. We want people living with this uh, disease sitting at the table. And we've made a lot of gains. I think there's more to do, of course, and and we continue to to try to engage individuals. Uh, you mentioned uh, a few times now a medication, medication-assisted treatment, or MAT, as it's known, um, the ability to uh, help people who are struggling with addiction, uh, the treatment being Suboxone or Methadone or Vivitrol. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about what the evidence shows for people that are using MAT, uh, what that means for their recovery. Well, the evidence shows, and I and I don't have the the data in front of me, but the evidence shows that individuals that actually use MAT, it, it, it this is a brain disease. The medication ultimately um, evens off the highs and the lows that happen with someone in a traditional. Um, uh, detox situation from opioids. They're when they're using, they go way up, and they're you know they feel normal. And then as soon as they start withdrawing, they go way way down in terms of withdrawal and needing the drug. And at some point in a person's chaotic use, the drug doesn't even afford a high anymore. It just makes an individual feel normal. So what the medication does is it's a small amount of opioids, not enough to keep to make someone high. It lets their brains, it lets you be normal. You Instead of the highs and the lows, you're at this normal spot where you can function, where you can live, where you can get up in the morning and go to work, where you can, you're not bound, you're not thinking only about getting the drug to, to be okay. And so I think for this, for this um, disorder, for opioid use, this has been proven to be the most effective way for individuals to be able to feel normal, to go on with their daily life. It's different for everybody. Some some people find they need to be on this forever. Other people work with their doctors, and at some point they can look at maybe titrating down and getting off of the medication. But it really affords an individual peace of mind, normalcy, the ability to go on with daily life and make plans and be productive. Mm. I asked for that explanation because when we've talked about um, – addiction on the show before. We've encountered different people. Again, we, we stress that uh, uh, one size doesn't fit all. Right. Uh, but we've, we hear from some in recovery who uh, question medication-assisted treatment. Uh, and so when you even, when you, even when you hear that from the general public, the idea of um, helping someone get off uh, heroin or painkillers with this, uh, there is some of that tension there. And I'm wondering how you talk about that with people. Well, we talk about it that it's medication for a disease. Um, If you go to the hospital, if you go to your doctor, if you have cardiac issues, if you have diabetes, if you have renal issues, if you have high blood pressure, you go through a series of tests, you talk to your doctor, and you're prescribed medication. And so this is no different. This is a medication for a brain disease. And this is a medication that enables the person with this disease to be in a level of remission, to not have to use, to not have to um, put themselves at risk for overdose, for death. And in the same way that someone takes their blood pressure medication every day or their insulin for their diabetes. And we, we kind of, we, you know, we talk more about the disease of addiction. I'm not a doctor. I'm not clinically able to, to really give all the clinical pieces of this. But really, we, we talk about how this, is no, this disease is no different than any other disease. And we're all, most of us, on medication for something and that this medication is something that helps um, manage this disease. 
Uh, tell me about, um, before we move on, uh, this, uh, the state's now awarding money to help expand this program in a different yes. way where you're working with first responders. Can you tell us briefly about that? Yes, we're really excited about this new um, initiative. Uh, part of uh, our engagement in New London involves the um, first responders who are in New London, the fire department. They do an awesome job of uh, when they're called to overdoses and they are trained. These are the people that um administer the naloxone, and then um, afterwards, if the person wants to go to the hospital, take them to the hospital. What we have noticed is that while we reach a lot of people in New London, we're not reaching the individuals that overdose in their own homes, that necessarily have the fire department come to them. And these are folks that usually are working, they're in their own apartments, they may not be out in the general public like the folks that the navigators work with. So we now have a chance to have a um, designated navigator work with the fire department and um, this navigator will go out starting in April with some volunteer uh, firefighters that will follow up on the calls they've gotten for overdose and then this way we have a designated navigator to work with these individuals and see if we can help out if there's something they need from us. Uh, Jesse, uh, you are, are fairly new to recovery navigators, uh, but tell us more about what this means for you as someone in recovery being able to help others. It's just so fulfilling. You know, when I when I went into treatment, I had a lot of people that were in recovery themselves that were very inspirational to me. I had a lot more trust in those people to see that they had recovered or were in remission from their own disease of addiction and just had hope that I could go on and live a meaningful life, you know, and I feel like I am able to give the people that I work with hope that it does get better. Like you can get through this. You can recover from the disease of addiction. It takes work, but it's not nearly as much work as it takes to go out and find drugs day in and day out. And that is your only focus is just getting one more. And I have children, you know, and a lot of these people that are suffering with this disease have children. And to be able to stand up not only as someone in recovery, but a mother in recovery and show them, you know, that you can finish school and you can have a a good life and pay your bills and have a car and, you know, do all of these normal things. But when you're living in active addiction, those things just seem unattainable, you know, and um, I just like I feel like I can give them hope and connect them to treatment and just be there as a support for them for whatever they need. Uh, Carol, this sounds like a unique program. Any other communities in the state doing what you're doing? Uh, not that I know of. I think Norwich um, has a um, uh, a 211 program where they get phone calls and there is a recovery coach that will reach out to those phone calls. But that is a um, someone that's referred through a 211 line. We're more on the ground moving. I think whatever works, we all need to work together. There's so much work to do. And hopefully, um, you know, other communities, I know other communities have their own programming. I think we're the first to do the recovery navigators. And certainly we have spoken around the state about what we're doing. Um, can't do enough. People are dying. We need to save lives. Well, I want to thank Carol Jones, uh, Director of Harm Reduction at the Alliance for Living, also Program Manager for Recovery Navigators, uh, one of the programs uh, that we're learning about today here on Where We Live. We appreciate you coming in. Thank you. 
Thank you for having us. Also, Jess Morris, who works uh, as a recovery navigator uh, in the New London County uh, area, also with the New London Cares Program. Jess, thank you for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, a federal and state governments didn't provide grants to help pay for programs like Recovery Navigators. What kind of outreach would New London be able to offer residents? We're going to ask the city's human services director that question and more right after the break. And you can join us too, 860-275-7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's likely you'll find opioid drug abuse in any town or city, no matter where you live. But some municipalities are dealing with a much bigger problem, cities like New London, Connecticut. Joining me now in studio is Jeannie Milstein, Director of Human Services for New London. Jeannie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. I know some of our listeners will remember your name. You were the longtime child advocate uh, for, I think, 12 years, right? Correct. Almost 12 years. I had the honor of being the uh, state child advocate. Well, we're happy to have you on the show to talk about the work that's being done in New London. Um, when we think about the opioid crisis, again, there's not any community in this country that hasn't been touched by it. I'm wondering if you can explain to us uh, what it looks like on the ground for the city of New London to help people that are struggling with opioid drug abuse. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And um, our mayor, Mayor Michael Passero, was first elected in 2015. And Mayor Passero spent almost 32 years as a New London firefighter. So when I was hired three years ago, he said to me, I was used to being the child advocate, so every sentence ended with do something. He said to me, the opioid crisis is devastating our community. You need to do something. So we very quickly assembled a team, and as Carol mentioned earlier, Ledgelight Health District, uh, Yale slash Lawrence Memorial Hospital Alliance for Living, we got together, and along with our first responders, who I have to say, our first responders are second to none in our community. Their dedication, their compassion, and their tenacity is just extraordinary. So we got together, we looked at some models that had worked, which was a very effective housing model, the Coordinated Access Network model. Carol mentioned that Earlier, we got together, we got together with community providers, and we said, we need to take action. We have to save lives. We have to help people thrive and survive. We have to restore families. We have to enhance our businesses and heal our, and heal and strengthen our community. So we got to work very quickly. Then we were fortunate enough to get these grants. And well, you know, we were looking at individual cases, we also looked at systemic barriers. Mm-hmm. When you mention it's devastating uh, our community, what do you mean? Who are the people uh, that um, you're trying to help in New London? The people that we're trying to help are people who are struggling with this disease. It could be anybody from a parent. It could be a child who has a parent who's suffering with the disease. It could be a lawyer. It could be a school teacher. This disease affects everyone in our community. 
And so those are the folks we are trying to help. We heard about this unique program in New London County, Recovery Navigators. Uh, uh, Tell us a little bit more about the response uh, that Recovery Navigators um, has received, about the people that they're helping. The response has been extraordinary. As our first responders are very supportive of our police department, our fire department, our community, because they know we are saving lives every single day. And so people have rallied around this. Um, Cards are handed out by the firefighters, by the police department, people who are just going about the course of their daily lives. So knowing that every single day we are helping people survive and thrive is what keeps us going. We also have a couple of other unique initiatives in New London as well. We are the first community in the state that has some kind of oversight over sober homes, which are completely unregulated. We also have a very successful program in our courthouse called the TPP program, which was created by Dr. Kathy Maurer at the Department of Correction and Chief State's Attorney Kevin Kane, whereby folks who are struggling with the disease who have been arrested under certain criteria can go into treatment and not into prison. We have recovery coaches, which many hospitals do right now in our emergency rooms. So we're very proud of some of the firsts that we have done, too. We also are very pleased that the governor has included money in his budget to provide medically-based treatment in all the jails and prisons because Newland has two prisons in close proximity, and we know that people who are formerly incarcerated are 8 to 10 or 8 to 11 times more likely to overdose in the first few weeks after their release. I'm curious from the municipal standpoint, uh, you've mentioned often about the role of first responders. You have um, these um, collaborations with nonprofits, but it, it costs a lot of money to help deal with this opioid crisis. And that goes on to my next question, because we know uh, New London Mayor Michael Passero and others are now asking the Connecticut General Assembly to help them have uh, the ability to sue Big Pharma for their role in this crisis. Why did uh, Mayor Passero take this leadership role? Well, he said enough is enough. These companies knew that they were leading people into the gripping disease of substance use disorder. It is so fundamentally unfair that taxpayers are now footing the costs and bearing the responsibility for costs that these companies knew were going to harm people. We are demanding accountability from these companies who, again, are in large part responsible for creating this crisis by recklessly promoting the dangerous drugs that have devastated our community and so many others. It's a bipartisan issue. The steering committee consists of Republicans, Democrats, and we want accountability. We want our day in court. Mm -hmm. We are the only state right now that does not allow municipalities to sue these companies. Every other state allows municipalities to do so. So again, it's fundamentally unfair. Taxpayers are bearing the burden and we want accountability. We want our day in court. Talk about the, the ripple uh, effect of this. Uh, so again, uh, first responders are on the ground uh, encountering someone who might be uh, de- you know, over, who OD'd. And so from there uh, to the hospitals, uh, to um, how, how it ripples through your city and how you're able to respond to that. Well, there's a lot of trauma, obviously. We've, 
you know, assemble this team, we react, we look at the systemic barriers, you know, just mentioned waiting times to get medically-based treatment, for example, we're looking at insurance, we're looking at transportation. We're also looking at the trauma. And part of the grant that will support our firefighters and navigators reaching out is also, there's a piece of that that will provide support to the trauma that first responders experience all the time. It's very, very difficult to watch somebody die. It's very difficult to see someone who is in the grips of this disease. So providing the right kinds of treatment and support services to everyone who's involved is extremely important to us. By the way, in terms of our Connecticut Opioid Strategy Task Force, which has now been created, we do have a website, which is www.opioidscostct.com. So O-P-I-O-I-D-S. C-O-S-T-C-T.com, hashtag opiates cost CT. Well, you mentioned that, uh, that the municipalities in the state um, is the only, are the only uh, ones in the country that have not been able to sue uh, Big Pharma for this. Uh, so you're uh, asking the legislature to allow municipalities to have their day in court. But why not appeal? Why not take that well, We are appealing. We are. But that could take years. And this, really, the legislation is just a clarification. We're not changing any laws. We're just clarifying that municipalities have this ability to you know, hold these companies accountable. Uh, when we talk about recovery navigators or the CARES program, uh, other uh, initiatives on the ground, um, are you, when we hear about them helping people uh, get connected to treatment, uh, what does it still look like uh, on the ground in New London in terms of um, you know, the number of ODs? Is it flattening? Are you seeing uh, these numbers decreasing at all? Well, we have seen a little decrease. And, and you know, it sounds terrible to say this, but in this environment, that's actually a good thing, um, that we're not increasing. We know that we're making a difference every day. We certainly, as Carol said, can do so much more, and we're trying. We're so diligent in our efforts with our partners to prevent, support, and treat those impacted by this public health crisis. So I'll give you another example of where we've had success using this kind of a model. About a year and a half ago, like New Haven, but on a much smaller scale, we had a rash of K2 poisonings in our community. So we're 27,000 people in New London, where, by the way, we carry, well, the, for the police department carry Narcan for their canine dog. That's how bad this crisis is. So at any rate, we were seeing a lot so of- So explain that. Explain that a little bit when you say Narcan for their canine dog. Right. Because if a, a dog sniffs fentanyl, the dog could die, just like a human being, you know, exposed to fentanyl. Mm -hmm. It's such a tragedy. So K2 poisonings were happening. Sometimes seven or eight people transported to the hospital a day, sometimes the same person um, several times. And we said, this is a crisis. We need to pull a team together to respond to this. And we've set up a triage system of where um, you, honoring, of course, all the HIPAA laws where um, Overdoses, I receive information about overdoses every single morning. We have a team that gets involved. We follow up with people that are willing. And we've seen a reduction in frequent transports to the emergency room of 75%. So these efforts are working. Carol shared the data about how many people have been engaged through really less than a year of the, the project, Navigator Project, getting off the ground, how many people have gotten help with medically 
based treatment primarily. Mm. So uh, as a, again, a city in the state of Connecticut, uh, collaboration matters to see um, how municipalities uh, can also work together in a particular region. Um, we hear about, you know, federal grants helping uh, pay for things like the Recovery Navigator Program, the state DEMAS, uh, Department of Mental Health Addiction Services, uh, giving a grant to help expand this uh, program to uh, work the navigators with uh, the firefighters. Uh, but without these grants, you'd be in a precarious situation. How would the city of New London even be able to handle uh, what they're seeing among well, their residents? It, it would be, this crisis would have even more of a devastating impact if we didn't have these resources. More people would die. That's the bottom line. We need these resources, and that's why we want these companies to be accountable. Because right now, aside from the grants, taxpayers are bearing responsibility for this. Um, when we uh, think about uh, the money that's been provided by the state to help with uh, responders, what are some other ways the state could be uh, giving you resources uh, to help uh, besides the first responder element? Well, I think that's, that's a great question. I mean, um, fortunately, we've been able to get a lot of naloxone from the state, but I think state giving us money that allows us to be very creative and to use that money to braid it, if you will, with other money so that we can fund initiatives that involve many, So, for example, the navigators. We might team that with recovery coaches in the hospital and how we um, do more work through that. If we can have some more programs like the treatment program that's the TPP program that's available in the courthouse where the folks can go into treatment. So if we can have more money to do some really creative work using data, using science, that would also be very helpful. And, and the governor, the lieutenant governor, um, the commissioner of the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services have been very supportive of us. In fact, we're hoping to have them all come down for a formal launch of our project with the firefighters and the navigators. So I think giving us money and allowing us to be creative with this and allowing us to be able to provide resources for a continuum of care. This is a journey and people need different support, different treatment at different times during the course of their remission and recovery. So being able to provide those supports as well, like transportation, for example, or if somebody is in an emergency situation, having money to pay for um, what they need at that moment. Housing, jobs, these are services, support services and barriers that we're, we really need to address. So having more money for that would be extremely helpful. Judy Milstein, again, is Director of Human Services for the City of New London, uh, here to talk with us about how the city is dealing with the opioid crisis, as well as providing uh, resources to help not only those uh, who are suffering um, from addiction, but their families as well. Jeannie, thanks so much for coming in. Can I just say one more thing? I just want a really important message. No one has to die. As long as they are alive, there is hope and change is possible. That's a really important message I want to get out there. So thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Jeannie. Uh, this is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I mentioned uh, we got this idea for these two segments from our Coffee Break series where we travel around the state uh, to hear from residents about issues in their community, stories that may not be getting coverage. We're going to be in Middletown on Tuesday, March 26. You can learn more on Where We Live's Facebook page. Now, coming up, we're going to turn to care for expectant mothers in Connecticut. 
Connecticut. If they're on Medicaid, their access to certified nurse midwives can be limited. We're going to tell you why that matters right after the break. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, we've highlighted the role of certified nurse midwives previously on the show after ProPublica reported a series of stories about the high maternal mortality rate in the U.S. ProPublica's Nina Martin told us studies find U.S. states, which allow midwives to play a bigger part in healthcare systems, have better health outcomes for mothers and babies. Now, how easy is it for expectant mothers to access care from a certified nurse midwife in Connecticut? Now, for some mothers on Medicaid, that access can be limited. To explain, joining me now in studio is Nicole Leonard. She's healthcare reporter for WMPR, Connecticut Public Radio. Nicole, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me this morning. So I've mentioned certified nurse midwives a few times. Uh, tell, tell me more about what their role is um, and what their qualifications are. Yeah, so certified nurse midwives are part of a larger um, a group of healthcare providers. They are licensed independent healthcare providers. So, um, and as of 2010, they actually are required to have master's degrees, very similar to advanced practice nurses like physician's assistants or um, nurse practitioners. And they um, they typically uh, specialize in women's healthcare, but they also provide primary primary care too. Uh, when I had my two children, the OB- OBGYN practice in Middletown had a certified nurse midwife as part of the overall team, um, and I was very fond of her. Uh, but uh, tell me a little bit more uh, when we think about the services they provide. So you have the obstetrician gynecologist, you have the certified nurse midwives. What are the similarities in care, and what are the differences? Yeah, so certified nurse midwives, they pretty much run the gamut of um, the patients that they serve. So they can um, start seeing patients in their teens, young girls who are starting to go to, um, they want reproductive care. Um, They'll see women through their childbearing years, whether they want children or not. So these are women who are looking maybe for contraceptive care. Um, And then, of course, women who are going through birthing and pregnancy. And then they'll see women all the way through menopause. So they can can prescribe, they can do annual exams, regular testing, um, and then provide all the services that come with birthing and both pre-birth and and after. Um, Are those services more flexible, even more affordable than uh, an OBGYN? A lot of the times, a lot of the nurse uh, midwives that I talk to are extremely flexible in the fact that they really see themselves as um, community members. Really, they play a vital role in their communities. And so they try and be accessible almost 24-7 on phone calls. They they get to know not not just the patient, but their family. Um, And they'll try and be accessible to them as much as possible, even trying to fit them in the next day if they're worried about uh, about something. So, um, yeah. So in your reporting, you spoke to certified nurse midwives, including Eliza Holland. Here's what she told you. I really feel strongly that improved access to midwifery care benefits patients. And I think it benefits the whole healthcare system. In addition, I think physicians are very pleased with it. I think it improves quality of life for them, but they also get to focus on higher risk, more complicated patients and the things that they do that we don't in terms of surgeries and and higher risk cases. 
So I wanted to uh, move on about uh, the the reason we had you on the show, this very interesting uh, dynamic at play uh, in our state of Connecticut with how certified nurse midwives are reimbursed. Uh, walk us through um, you know, what the differences are in Connecticut versus, versus in other places. Nicole. Right. So we're talking about Medicaid, and a lot of um, patients on Medicaid are lower-income uh, women, and um, they Medicaid's a federal program, but the states uh, oversee it, and, and they um, have uh, a fiscal role in it as well. And so um, when certified nurse midwives um, do the same services, say, as an OBGYN doctor, like an annual screening or even part, you know, all of the uh, services that come with birthing and pregnancy, they are reimbursed at 90 percent of what OBGYNs make. So 90 cents on the dollar that OBGYNs make. And, and this has caused a problem because they're doing the same services, um, but they're not getting paid the same. And and, and compared to other states in New England, Connecticut is sort of an outlier where uh, the state is pretty much the only one in this part of the country that hasn't closed this reimbursement gap. Mm. Uh, when we think about the argument for equal pay, um, are certified nurse midwives hearing in the state, well, you don't have the same level of education as an OBGYN, so that's why there's that you know that uh, difference in pay. I mean, what's what have they been hearing? Yeah, that definitely that definitely is what this um, gap is rooted in. Certainly, um, a, a lot of states have this gap already, and then when the Affordable Care Act was passed, that the gap the reimbursement gap was closed within Medicare, um, but it hasn't yet in Medicaid because states kind of they have a role. This would require state dollars to close this gap, and so um, you know when we're talking about uh, equal pay for equal work. It's, you know, OBGYN doctors do have a higher level of education, but um, certified nurse midwives are licensed to do these same services and their education background allows them to do these services. And so they think that they should get the equal pay because doctors do have income from other things like surgery and um, other services they provide that certified nurse midwives can't. So what has been the consequence? What are nurse, certified nurse midwives having to do because they're not getting that equal pay for Medicaid patients, Nicole? Right. So because of the pay gap, uh, some certified midwives have said, especially ones that uh, run their own practices, it's a practice that is completely run by certified nurse midwives, that they've had to cap the number of Medicaid patients that they can see. So that's become a problem because a lot of communities might not have other maternity care or other OBGYNs in the area. And so a certified nurse midwife is um, a provider that can serve them um, and provide their health care needs. So if they can't get in to them because the practice can't um, take, they can only take a certain number of Medicaid patients and that becomes a problem. And then you leave people possibly without care. Uh, Here's certified nurse midwife Eliza Holland uh, talking about this. We still have to make rent and accomplish payroll. And so in order for us to be able to do that, we really do have to limit the number of folks with that insurance. And, and we hate to do that. We really want to be able to care for everybody. So uh, this has been a, a longstanding problem. This, like, this hasn't just popped up, right? So this uh, discrepancy in pay has been going on for years? Yes, yeah. And the nurse that you just um, heard from, Liza Holland, she said that this is one of the issues that she was learning in her nursing class more than 20 years ago. So this has been a longstanding problem, and it just recently uh, got to the level in Connecticut where it's been introduced in legislation. So uh, this legislation uh, is before the Connecticut General Assembly. What are lawmakers? 
Baker saying about this? Any ideas of whether this has some legs uh, to, be, to pass this session? Yeah, so this is actually, because this is a longstanding problem, but this is actually the first time that they've gotten a bill introduced in the legislature. And um, a lot of the certified nurse midwives, they, um, there was overwhelming support to close the gap. Um, including there was support from the from state officials. Um, and the thing is that while state officials do support, they testified that they do support closing the gap is important because certified nurse midwife outcomes, birthing outcomes, are very high in terms of low C-section rates and very low complications. Um, the fiscal impact is the problem. The state is experiencing a fiscal crisis. There's a lot of budgetary problems. And they said, um, the, the officials that testified, that that's essentially what is holding up correcting this this problem. Any ideas that the federal government's going to pony up more money for states like Connecticut? <laughs> <laughs> Probably doubtful. But but yeah, Connecticut really has this, this uh, the power to correct this really lies within the state and uh, nurse certified nurse midwives, especially in Connecticut, feel that they're surrounded by their neighbors in neighboring states that are getting paid equal for equal services. And so they feel that it's time for Connecticut to do the same. Nicole Leonard, again, is healthcare reporter for WMPR, Connecticut Public Radio. Actually, a new transplant to Connecticut. We're glad to have you, Nicole. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show at WMPR.org slash where we live. And tomorrow we're going to dive into autonomous vehicles. Are you looking forward to the day when you can just jump into a self-driving car and let it drive you to work? We're going to talk to experts about the promises and challenges of autonomous vehicle development tomorrow. And what can Connecticut get learned from places like Boston and the UK. We're going to find out. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.